It really comes from understanding consumer behavior and what people mm. are doing. And you follow that and you then you can figure out how relevant your brand is and how you can change behavior. Hey everyone, before you get to the podcast, this is Kirby Hosman. I wanna say thank you. And I wanna tell you about my brand new book called Hit the Target. You can find that at Amazon or at hitthetargetbook.com. Now, on to the episode. Hey there, and welcome to a brand new episode of Delivering Marketing Joy. I am your host, Kirby Hosman, and joining me today is a brand new rock star. I'm so excited about this conversation. It's all about changing people's behavior, which is what marketing is all about. Our guest today is the head of ethnography at Ipsos Mori, is a business anthropo anthropologist. He, this is really complex to get through in it, and I love it. it. He offers an unfiltered view of people and culture through international research. I think we're going to really learn some stuff today. He educates companies and governments on how to change consumer and citizen behavior. Oliver Sweet, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you very much for having me. And sorry about my stupid uh, job title. Head of ethnography is a really awkward thing to be pronouncing for something that's actually quite simple and actually quite joyous. Yeah, that's awesome. I love that you, yeah, right before we started recording, I'm like, help me, help me pronounce this. I just want to make sure I don't come off as more stupid than usual. So thank you for that. I appreciate it. So let's just dive right in, Oliver. So, you know, you talk about how to change consumer and citizen behavior. So how do you improve brand relevance and change consumer behavior? How do you do that? Um, so it, as an ethnographer, what I do is I go and meet people and understand the world from their point of view, right? So, so much of research is all about surveys, asking some questions, getting some answers. Or on the qualitative level, it's about focus groups, getting people in a room, asking some clever questions, getting some good answers back. My world is going into people's homes, understanding what they do, where they go, who they hang out with, and trying to figure out what culture they live in. And I go all around the world into people's homes doing this. And there's a couple of different things in that question. So one of the things, one of the ideas I want to throw out there as, a, as an idea is like, where does the brand exist? And so many of these people who are listening in today, marketing managers, they may have brand managers. People, brand, brand managers may think that the brand lives on their desk and they know how to write it out. It's got an emotional element, a functional element, and they know how to communicate it with certain iconography and stories. I think that brands exist in the minds of consumers. Mm -hmm. it, they exist in how they are interpreted, how a consumer looks at your brand, the colors of your logo, the story about authenticity or provenance or whatever that might include, that the brand actually exists in their mind. And I'll give you, I'll give you an interesting example. Um, Jägermeister is a uh, spirit that many of us will know. It's become highly popular in the last 10 years. It's existed um, in Germany for many, many years. It's basically a digestive you have after your meal to help you with digestion. And it's got kind of additional qualities. If you're feeling a bit poorly, you might have a little slow drink Jägermeister in Germany, right? What they saw in the UK, or certainly in the US and other places, is people were dropping a shot of this into Red Bull and smashing it back. It's not medicinal. Well, it might be medicinal, but not in the way that they'd intended it, that's for sure. It was like rocket fuel. And because what happened is, so if you imagine you're Jägermeister and you're looking at your brand and going, this isn't how I wanted people to drink my products, no way. Right? So it was different from what was going on on a brand manager's desk to how it was actually being seen in the eyes of consumers. Now, 
fair play to Jägermeister. They saw this and they lent in and they just went for it. And they started promoting Jäger bombs and Jäger being used in different ways. And I think that this has come from them understanding that their brand doesn't sit on a brand manager's desk necessarily, but it's going to be influenced that way. It really comes from understanding consumer behavior on what people mm. are doing. And you follow that and you then you can figure out how relevant your brand is and how you can change behavior. That's incredibly insightful, Oliver. And I, I agree with you 100% that I think so many times we think we know what the brand means, but the brand means what the consumers believe. So I, I think, and leaning into what the behavior is, is I think really insightful. So, but I think, you know, one of the things that we think is if we just explain to people, if we just, hey, this is this is the best way to use our product. This is the best way to improve your life. This is the best way to do whatever. You're going to educate them. Why doesn't educating people actually change their behavior? Well, we would love it, wouldn't we? We would love it. We would love to be so smart as individuals that we learn something new and then we then take it into all parts of our life, right? And one of the great things that behavioral science has taught us is that we don't always act in our own self-interest and that we don't always act in a way that is very rational. Uh, one of the big, big ideas that behavioral science landed is we had sort of two ways of thinking, a system one side, which is very fast, it's instinctive um, and very responsive, and a system two side, which is, you know, very thoughtful and reflective and smart and logical. And actually, system one just dominates our behavior, and system two is like the little iceberg that we hold on to. But... And, and so we might think that we are going to embark on some healthy behaviors. We might think that we are going to drink less alcohol. We might think that we are going to smoke less. But system one takes over. And this is natural. This is who we are. This is part of the quirks of human beings, I think. Um, and one of the things we'd be difficult at doing is translating system two into system one. Um, I, did a, I did a piece of work for UK government a few years back um, which is all about financial literacy. How do you help people to save and plan for the future in ways that people tell us that they want to? Mm -hmm. So a lot of people might come to the government or to banks or to other places and say, I really want to start saving a bit better, but you know, just not actually doing it very well. And people say, I've got a plan. All right, okay, how are you going to put your plan in place? Yes, definitely. You know, a month passes, no plan has ever been enacted. And um, and one of the and what we were there to do was really to design interventions to help people to save better. Mm -hmm. um, one of the we we came up with several different interventions. Many of them worked in different ways, but one of the ones that we came up with was really about um, finding ways to interrupt system one behaviors with system two thinking. Mm -hmm. And what we did is we designed a little sort of paper sleeve that went out the outside of people's credit card. They slotted right in. And then on one side of that, that credit card, they could write on the sleeve that says, things I don't want to spend money on anymore. Mm -hmm. Right? I don't want to go and spend uh, money on buying five things for my lunch when I go to the office. Right? I only want to buy one thing. Right? Or I don't want to buy so many clothes. But, or I don't want to buy a certain thing. Or I don't want to buy something on Amazon. And on the other side, they could write things that they were allowed to spend money on. Right? If they didn't buy so many clothes, they could allow themselves to buy steak. Right? It was a trade down in terms of monetary value, but it was still exciting, it was still fun, it was still interesting. And what happened is that that was a stage, that was a, that was a system two piece of thinking that whenever they went to a shop, 
may interrupted their system one behavior. So on the way back from work or going out for lunch or lunchtime, they might go, oh, I'm only going to buy one cheap thing rather than buy three things or buy loads of chocolate or something. Or they might go to the shops on the way home and just pop into the clothes shop and go, oh, I'm just going to buy myself a T-shirt. But the act of having that around their credit card and making them see it stopped them in the moment to make them start thinking, actually, do I really need this? And it went way beyond the stated saving behavior to actually it make them pause and think whenever they were spending anything whenever they were so it was system two interrupting system one and had a fantastic effect it was really 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 good it reminds me of like like whenever you meet with a personal trainer or you meet with someone like uh or a coach that's helping with your finances one of the first things they do is make you document what you're eating and it's amazing how quickly i'm like well i'm not gonna eat that i don't want to write that down <laughs> Like, and so it feels like one of, kind of kind of similar. Does that make sense? Yes, it, it, it totally nutty makes sense. It totally nutty makes sense. We also did some work for government on um, healthy eating, actually with families as well. And one one of the things that the, the government was doing at the time is that they were advertising to families, basically saying that an overweight child at the age of f between five and eight has fewer has worse life outcomes than if they were not overweight, right? And therefore, what we are doing is we're gonna help you with some home cooking recipes that are healthier. And you know what? People hated that message. That was something that they really, really did not like, right? That was uh, patronizing. It was rude. It was like an invasion of privacy. It was suggesting that they were bad parents, right? Mm -hmm. All they were doing was providing information. They were educating people with some facts and some ways of actually dealing with those that problem as well. So what we did is we worked with uh, Public Health England, the health authority in charge of this. And we said, look, your, your, your messaging's all wrong here. You need to find something that, uh, that that parents are going to buy into and believe in as well. And we, we did tons of work. We went into people's homes. We understood what healthy eating meant. We understood what it's like to be really stressed, to work a 12-hour shift and then come home and collapse on the sofa and just let your kids get on with life, right? Because that's actually the realities of most people. Yeah. And what we ended up doing is we actually found that there was a common enemy, right? So the Public Health England and parents had a common enemy, and that was sugar, right? The Public Health England didn't like sugar because it was it, it was essentially just calories, and it made children uh, increase calories and made them overweight. Parents didn't like sugar because it just sent their kids berserk. Yeah. Kids love sugar, though, so it was always a war. It was always a war with sugar. So actually, what they did, when they found out that actually um, that there was a common enemy, they changed their strategy to be much more about, less about like telling people what they should and shouldn't eat, and much more about, did you know there is X amount of sugar in this product? In a can of soup, did you know there's this much sugar? In, obviously, a can of Coke, there's lots of sugar. Obviously, in sweets, there's lots of sugar. But other everyday items as well, did you know how much sugar is in this cereal? And what it did is it turned parents into investigators to go, I don't want my child to go crazy all the time, so I'm going to choose something with slightly less sugar. And in the last sort of eight, nine years since we've started working with them, we they, they've gone on a campaign to basically reduce sugar. And within a four-year period, they measured it that, um, that the sugar consumption of children after they started their campaign had gone down by one-third across the whole country. It's wow. a huge intervention yeah. to finding a common enemy, essentially. 
That's fascinating. And you, you've, you've touched on it, right? Like, so we talked about people don't always operate in their best interest, but how do we help people act in their best interest? And like I say, you've touched on a little bit, but is, is there any more we can dig in? I, I mean, that's, that, that is a lot of the stuff that sits behind behavioral sciences. It's got this sort of philosophy of um, libertarian paternalism, which is um, let's create a series of choices for people which the easiest option is going to be a healthy option, mm-hmm. a, you know, a, a, a financially better option. Right? So a lot of the work that's happened in the UK is that when you start a job now, the automatic default is that you opt into a pension. Mm-hmm. Previously, you had to actively opt in. Mm-hmm. Right? You, so now you have to, if you don't want it, you have to, if you do nothing when you, when you start a job now, you start with a pension and you have it right and and previously you had to opt into one so people would start their job it was busy they'd have to meet new people right. they had loads of admin to do and they'd go oh yeah i really need to take out pension but pensions are boring complicated so i'm gonna leave that till later four years go by they haven't taken out pension and then they go oh, it's just getting a bit late now right the choice is exactly the same as it was before right? you don't you can have a pension or not have a pension but the automatic default is that you now start with a pension mm. and that there are many other options like that which are being put in place and it's just about sort of organizing your world and if you go and meet people so as as an ethnographer i'm always in favor of just go and meet people uh you go and watch what they do you go watch how they do things you'll find out you know what the environment is around them and how to help them make better choices in life I, I want to go just off script for one second because I'm kind of just kind of curious because you mentioned that most of the time when we do this sort of thing, we, we do surveys and stuff like that. Um, and you're saying, hey, man, I go to their house and I, I see their behavior. Why do you think that? Tell me about the difference there. Like, so like it makes sense that you see what they're doing and there might be a discrepancy between what they say they're they're doing versus is that is that why you want to be in their home? So so the the. You know, if, if, if ethnography has got like a, a, a thing going for it, it's basically to map the differences between what people say and what mm. people do. And as individuals, we do it all the time. Yeah. All the time we, we do that. And it's when, when you get into the world of, uh, of market research and you sort of feed into marketing plans, uh, it's always quite fun to showcase that people say one thing and they do another thing. It's always yeah. like, ha ha, caught you out. It's fun. But, but there's a lot more to it than that in actual fact, because we all do it. Right? And it's a bit disingenuous to say, to laugh at them, because I do different things. I purport to be quite healthy, but the amount of chocolate I eat is off the scale. <laughs> and it's not healthy, it's ridiculous. Um, but what, what it's basically doing is it's showcasing from a marketing perspective that people want to do something that they currently cannot achieve. Mm. And that is a huge tension and therefore a huge opportunity. Yeah. Right. So I, in my in my mega chocolate eating, right, I say that I'm quite healthy, but I eat a horrific amount of chocolate. So there's a tension there, which is basically I haven't found an adequate sweet or pick me up that is actually healthy. Right. There might be something out there that I could substitute in, and someone could come to me, a brand could come to me and say, "Hey, if you've ever wanted to cut down on your chocolate consumption, but still have something that is a nice pick me up in the afternoon because you've had too much coffee so far and you don't want to drink any more caffeine," is a great opportunity. Now, I haven't seen that, and 
bonus when he just made it up today, but there's <laughs> always a difference between what people say and do. And from a marketing perspective, that is just gold in terms of an opportunity. That's what we need to be looking for. That's brilliant. Actually, it's it's funny, Oliver. One of my favorite quotes, and I honestly don't know who to attribute it to. I say it all the time, is the greatest distance in the world is the distance between I know and I do, right? Like it is because every time you're you're coaching a client, you're doing whatever, it's like, yeah, 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 I know. Yeah, but are you doing it? Oh, no, no, I'm not doing that. <laughs> Absolutely. So I love what you say about the idea that when you find that um, divergence, that there's a real marketing opportunity. So Oliver, I appreciate you taking the time today. Where can people find more information about your work and what you do? So I work for probably one of the largest uh, research agencies in the world, Ipsos. We are in 89 different countries and our website is massive. So please do visit the Ipsos website. Most of Ipsos is a survey company. We do tons of focus groups as well. Um, my little department in ethnography sits at the small end of the scale. Um, best way to find me if you want to catch up and ask some questions is on LinkedIn. I'm Oliver Sweet, Head of Ethnography at Ipsos. And I'm totally open to asking questions, having a chat, meeting up on Zoom, whatever it takes. I, you know, I'm more about having interesting conversations these days than anything else. So please That's do awesome. get in touch. That is awesome. Oliver, this was really, really insightful. I really appreciate you taking the time. We'll have to do it again sometime, okay? Be great. Thanks. Cool. Well, that's going to wrap up this edition of Delivering Marketing Joy. We'll see you next time.